We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we are going to go right now to Washington, D.C. with so for our weekly chat with the one and only Bob Nay. Welcome to the show, Bob. Hey, good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good. So I have to start with uh, the senator from Kentucky. I'm watching uh, TV, or maybe it was YouTube, and I see a second instance in which uh, Senate Minority Leader and longtime Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell on camera has basically a, a freeze-up for several uh, very awkward seconds. I then watched Sanjay Gupta on TV, the, the neurosurgeon, say it was not a seizure, it was not a stroke. But I now see that uh, Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley says that it's uh, time for Mitch uh, to go. Uh, and laughingly, his doctor said that he's been cleared uh, for business. I mean, I... If if anything is going to uh, break down trust in the medical profession, it's doctors telling us that politicians are actually fine and can do their jobs. But can you comment on the Mitch McConnell well, situation? Sure. And by the way, I mean, it's a great point, Kevin, about the doctors, because if you go back to Senator Fetterman during his Pennsylvania election, the doctor said, he, you know, he can he can go to work, but didn't say, you know, other things, which obviously are becoming evident now, you know. With uh, with Senator Fetterman and then, of course, uh, Senator Feinstein. And, you know, it's, this has just been an ongoing issue with problems that some of the members of the House and Senate have. But uh, when it comes to Mitch McConnell, he's the Republican leader and he had his one freeze. And then, of course, this one, I watched it. It was it was painful for me. You know, I know Mitch McConnell well. I uh, had him as my main sponsor in the Senate with Ted Kennedy. For the Help America Vote Act, I dealt with Mitch, sharp as attack, you know. And like anything, things happen, medical situations and age. Uh, so Nikki Haley, I think, is probably laying out on the line what a lot of people are thinking. And by the way, frankly, they're thinking about the president, too. Yeah. yeah they want to exclude him from this from this angle, uh, which leaves Trump that doesn't have a medical situation, but he's under constant indictment. So you have this whole series of, of a ring around uh, you know some of the top people. In the country, but Mitch McConnell obviously, you know, has an issue. And the thing, I guess, I, I don't know. I served out there, and yes, I was in office 24 years, and yes, it's hard to stop. But you know, his wife Elaine Chow is a very wonderful person. You know, they have family, and it's just like you start to think uh, back, uh, like Congressman Rangel. I was sitting there when his wife, in um, in an overseas trip, turned to my wife and I and said. I just want him to quit so bad, and he simply won't. And so, you know, this this continues on. And it's their private business, but this is going to affect, you know, his leadership and his ability to to be a leader. And I think Nikki Haley's right. There comes a time, including Senator Feinstein, where, you know, it's just it's time to enjoy life and kind of move on. Well, and Hillary Clinton uh, faced that, and she decided to run for president again. And in Vermont, and in Vermont, Patrick Leahy stared that right in the face, and he decided to quit. Uh, And Bernie Sanders, who is up for re-election, he's in his 80s, he's got a big decision in front of him. Now, Bernie clearly is cognitively and physically, I mean, we see him on the street. The guy has not lost a step. So he could, he's obviously, I think, a little bit different story than Mitch McConnell. But uh, when you get in your 80s, the, the, the life holds the mirror right up to your face. 
Well, it does. And yes, Bernie Sanders is different. He's, you know, he's sort of the Bernie that I served with. And Mitch McConnell and, and Joe Biden are not the, the Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell that I served with. And I'm not the person I was, too. You get older. But yeah, yeah certain people still have a vitality. So it's, it's not exactly an age thing as much as it is, you know, the medical condition of, of these individuals. But obviously, this second time with Mitch McConnell and the staff having to intervene. I mean, it just took me the flashbacks. Then, you know, I remember Strom Thurmond and what was going on there, which was really not pleasant. Yeah, Robert Byrd. I mean, the list is endless. Right. And yeah. and Byrd still had some, you know, agility to him. But Strom Thurmond was just, they, they had staff assigned to simply direct him around all day long. Yeah. Uh, Bob, uh, two former leaders of the far-right Proud Boys extremist group were sentenced to more than a decade each in prison uh, for their part in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, it was less than some wanted and more than others wanted. What do you make of this? This is uh, this is this 17-year prison term for Joseph Biggs and a 15-year term for Zachary Rell. Uh, they're on camera in the Capitol bragging about being there and breaking in. Well, now they're going to spend 17 years in the clink. Right. And and that's no fun place to be. I don't care what anybody says, all oh, the country club things. No, it's, right. it's confinement. I've been there and, and have done it. Um, I don't know. Sentencing sort of is in the eye of the beholder, I guess you could say, um, because a lot of people do think it should have been longer and and some less but i think it's probably right about in the middle i would assume and that's probably why the judge went that direction it's right about in the middle where uh, where it particularly should be for what they did i mean you just you know can't break into the capitol and try to stop proceedings and do damage and beat people and everything else that occurred and since they're the leaders when you're the leader of something, you take, as my grandmother used to say, comeuppance. She was from New York. <laughs> used to take a lot of comeuppance for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bob, another issue. 91,000 immigrants have crossed illegally into the United States um, in August. And that's a new record. Uh, what do we make of this? You know, uh Kevin, this didn't get a lot of media attention, but it's going to get ad attention because people are going to run ads against the president, right. you know, on this eventually in the campaign. But this one was was fascinating because you can see the power of TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook. People communicate, and what has happened is, uh, you know, cutting to the the, the punchline in the story, the uh, the story says the Achilles heel for the government, our government. Uh, when it comes to enforcement, is that most migrants in the category of families are quickly released and they're allowed to live and work in the United States while their cases are pending and the cases are backlogged, so it can take you know three, four, five years to reach a decision, and the process rarely ends in deportation. Now, federal data shows that. So, obviously, this gets out over you know the, the social media. That's how it works over people texting, using cell phones, because everybody has cell phones. And it's sort of like, okay, if you come with a family, your chances are better. So I think some of these are legitimate families. I think some of them are families thrown together to, quote, be a family. I mean, who knows? They don't have proper documentation, et cetera. And so now this this was the highest month ever. I think the only month preceding it, was May of 2019 during 
Trump's time. So it's increasing. They arrested 91,000 people across the border as a family in the month of August. So that's the highest numbers ever. So I guess they're going to catch on to come here as a family, and you're probably going to be able to be here versus if you come by yourself. And lastly, uh, Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty in the Georgia uh, election interference case. And uh, we spend some time on this show trying to figure out the future of the Republican Party. And I think the Trump case in Georgia really illustrates the cleaving of the old Republicans and the new Republicans. I saw that uh, efforts by pro-Trump Republicans to impeach the prosecutor down there ran headlong into Brian Kemp, the Republican governor, saying, we've been down this road and it leads us to lose elections. We're not going to do this, as well as the leaders of the Georgia legislature. So there's a split here and it's playing out kind of right in front of us all. And it's fascinating. It is. You know, when this topic first came up, I was doing a radio station up north and and they the story had just broke about what the legislature was going to try to do in Georgia. And at that time, I thought, don't do it, because I knew that there would be a division within Republicans. There'd just be a division of, quote, interference in the you know, judicial system, while others would be, you know, clamored at to go get them, you know, get rid of her. Right. This was going to have to play its its trial course out. It's going to have to play itself out in a courtroom. Uh, there's no way that the governor, if it made it as far, would would support that measure anyway. Interesting. And he's uh, Republican. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and he won overwhelmingly, well, not overwhelmingly, but he he, he won yeah. easily. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't know if I'm the chairman of the, or the, I'm the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. I'm not sure where I take this party, or at least try to take it, because you've got Donald Trump who's in charge, right, still? Right. And I don't think, Kevin, that it all settles down. Uh, you know, the Democrat Party has internal problems because a lot of people don't support Joe Biden. They just simply don't. Right. But, you know, they've got him. But with the Republican Party, it's very turbulent, very out front, very in your face. And I think until this 2024 is decided one way or the other, I, I and after that, I think probably there'll be a normalcy of, you know, what do Republicans stand for versus are you for or are you against Donald Trump, which is what it boils down to today. It sure does. Bob Ney, as always, from Washington, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure thank to you, have Kevin. you. Okay. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Kevin McCollum of Seven Days, and we're going to talk a little bit more about flooding because uh, the question's going to be where do you build back how do you how do you deal with this in the in, in the future? His story is called Climate Retreat. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back and we're joined by Kevin McCallum of Seven Days, whose story this week in the newspaper and on the website is called Climate Retreat. After summer floods, state planners look to higher ground for new housing. Kevin, welcome. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Okay. Uh we most Vermont towns are built in floodplains, uh, and we're and state planners uh, have always said we have to, and the legislature and the governor and everybody else says we got to build in downtowns to eliminate sprawl and to save uh, farmland. And here we are. We've got a choice. Do we keep doing that? Uh, what did you find in your story? 
Well, what I found was state planners are rethinking that, right? That has been the mantra for decades in the state, right? We need to focus development in these downtown areas to prevent sprawl, essentially, in the state of Vermont. We don't want to look like New Jersey. We don't want suburbia taking over our, our beautiful farmlands, our beautiful forest lands in the state. We want to just focus the development and housing in the areas that have already been developed uh, historically in Vermont. And so you're absolutely right. That that whole ambition, that whole goal has, is coming into stark relief with the reality that most of those downtowns are in uh, floodplain. They're, they're in, in the danger zone when it comes to floods. And the and the the July storm, you know, really really underscored that. And planners are starting to talk about disinvesting from some of those areas and focusing the development of homes um, and, and other types of uh, development in the state outside of those floodplains, which means outside of those downtowns, which um, is a difficult thing to get your head around. Yeah, it sure is. And, and, and yet there are some buildings that were after the last flood built to FEMA standards, which you cite in the, in the story. Conflict of interest alert, everybody. I'm the chair of the board of Downstreet Housing, which owns the apartments uh, and the transit center in downtown Montpelier on Taylor Street that did not flood. So uh, you can do it downtown, uh, I guess, as long as the flood doesn't get worse the next time. Right, right. And I want to correct one thing you just said, though, Kevin, is that you said that that building did not flood. And as you are well aware, and as the picture in my story shows, that building did flood. Well, that's right. But it was designed to handle the flood. Right. It was designed with a first story that was specifically uh, made so that if water, water came into that building, Oh, he's got a frog in his throat, everybody. I got a frog in my throat. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I'm the giving water you. Could easily be mucked out, and um, and <clears throat> so, sorry, you take it from here. No, no yeah, no, uh, take a sip of water. No, you're exactly right. Uh, the the transit center on Taylor Street was built uh, with the bus station downstairs. The apartments are upstairs, and it's a great photo in this week's Seven Days. So, yeah, those apartments were fine. I'm not exactly – they might have gotten some water in the in the bus station, but easily cleaned out. Right, right. No, and, and so that's a perfect example of the type of way that you could address development in a town that's in a floodplain, right? Right. Just design for it. Just build smart. Build Build it this way. And just keep doing that. And I think what has happened is in the state of Vermont, people are starting to say, yeah, we could do some of this. We could harden our buildings. We could build more in the floodplain. But I think more and more you are hearing state planners talk about not doing that. They are ta- you're talking about retreating from these areas, not hardening the buildings in these areas and building more in these areas. You're hearing more about let's go up the hill. Let's go outside of this zone. And so um, I, I found uh, it fascinating that the, the downtown designation program, which is sort of the, the way that the state goes about incentivizing developments in these areas, that, that that program is undergoing a review at the exact time that the floods have, have hit. And they're going to be meeting in, in Randolph in September, and they're going to be talking this through. And the people I spoke with said a big issue for 
this program and these programs is going to be should they continue to incentivize development in these downtowns. And I think increasingly it's going to be only if, <laughs> only yeah. if certain things are done. Yeah, I'm going to go to that. Um, the When you say the decision makers, you know, there's a – I see you quoted uh, Senator Allison Clarkson, Case Rom Hinsdale, uh, the governor's housing commissioner, Josh Hanford is part of this. I mean, where – where is you and I are both students of sort of the bureaucracy of government and how it operates. Where where are those decisions going to be made? Are they made at you know city planning commissions in Montpelier or Burlington, uh, you know, or or select boards, or are they made by the governor's staff, or are they made by the legislature, or sort of all of the above? And I think it might be all of the above. Yeah. But I, I think the first one you mentioned is probably the most important. And the, and the state planners that I spoke with said this. They said, look. These are community decisions. Communities will need to decide where to rebuild and where to build new housing that they desperately need. And that's going to be a very difficult conversation for each community to have. The state needs to have programs that can support these communities in accomplishing what they want to do, where they want to do it. But right now, there's a mismatch, right? The mismatch is... There are communities that are going to sort of need to sort of rethink how they do things, but the state's system for incentivizing development is still stuck in this 10-year-ago, 20-year-ago program of incentivizing them to do things in the core of the downtown because that's easier to walk and to, you know, uh, not have a car and to bike, to work, and all these idealistic sort of, uh, you know, um, views of, of urban planning that we've tried tried to adopt here in the state. And I just think those are going to need to shift. You know, uh, I'm involved in sort of these community meetings in Montpelier, and it's really clear to me that we, our city government is, uh, is still operating. It's set up for the 1990s. And I, I, you make a great point. I think we're all set up for the 1990s, and this is a new world, and we are going to have to change the way we govern, change the way we behave, the way we drive, the way we live. And I'm not sure that we have come to grips with that yet, but we will. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah I think you're. And I, I think Senator uh, Ron Hinsdale made a good point on that exact point, which is, look, if we're going to rethink where we build and where we live, and it's not down by the river, <laughs> down by, um, you know, in, in the core of our, our communities. Um, if we're not going to incentivize that anymore, uh, what's the natural uh, end result? And that is that we're going to be looking at other parts of towns that have n- have, have resisted development before, yeah. that have resisted apartment buildings being built in residential areas with large lot subdivisions, right? Yep. And she sort of sees that coming, like, oh, God, like, yeah. if we do start moving up the hill and requiring denser development in some of these areas that have long resisted it, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight. And she she sees it very clearly, and, and she and others know that that's going to be uh, a change that needs to happen almost in the hearts of Vermonters, right? Like everyone's going to have to just begin to start accepting that you're going to need to see new homes being built, new apartment buildings being built in places that might be a little uncomfortable for people. Yeah. 
Um, we're going to take a quick call. We have we don't usually get calls for our seven days guest. Linda, you're in Addison. Welcome to the show. Hi, um, I I'm gobsmacked to hear you say that most of our cities and towns are in floodplains. Um, you know, I think about Rutland or Bristol. Um, I, how 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 can this be? I mean, is there really data that says? You know, 200 out of two or out of 252 towns has this. Uh, that just seems amazing to me. Okay. Well, let me, let me. Great try question. To Go ahead, Kevin. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, 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 um, so what I, what my story was about was about the, um, d- downtown districts that have been established in the state. Not every, not every community. Not every community in the state of Vermont is in a floodplain, but most of the most, not all, but most of the downtowns, the village centers and the downtowns of communities are partly within floodplains. If you think about the way the historic development patterns of the state rolled out, which was uh, people built towns along rivers for power, for for grain production for 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 various reasons these communities have been sited along rivers i can think of innumerable examples in the state and so when and so it makes sense that when these communities sought to rehab their downtowns they created these districts for redevelopment of those areas uh, and that those districts are partly in a floodplain now remember a floodplain doesn't mean it's in the river itself doesn't mean it's on the banks even necessarily on the banks of the river, but a floodplain, a 100-year floodplain or a 500-year floodplain in many cases extends significantly away from where the flood, uh, where, where the river, river courses under normal conditions. And so that's not to say that they're all completely in, you know, the 100-year floodplain, but there are definitely parts of most of these districts in the state where there is a flood risk. And so that is that is true. I don't have the exact number, but there are there are you know 200, and I think 74 different designated areas for incentivized growth in the state, and a, and a good number of them are um, are are in, are in floodplains, and that's something that the the state planner, planners are just going to have to deal with. Yeah, I think I think what we've stumbled on here in your story is you are beginning. Maybe it's a new beat, which is. Uh, how we are going to live in the future. And yeah. you, you're just scratching the surface of uh, a, a big battleship being turned around very slowly from how we lived from the 1800s to the 1990s and how we're going to have to live going forward. And it's going to be a fascinating process, both politically and culturally and across the board. Yeah, I think it's a conversation that's that's really just starting in in. Um, and I think it's, as you say, going to be, happen for decades. Okay. Kevin McCallum, seven days. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Uh, you can find him at Kevin at seven days com. You can read his story in seven days com, or you can pick it up wherever. I mean, seven days is everywhere. And it, uh, what a resource. We're back. And our guest is the publishing Sherpa, the official VT Viewpoint book 
publicist, critic, and recommender, Mary Bisbee Beek. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm fine. I, before we start, I just wanted to let you know, we started the show uh, talking to the owner of our favorite bookstore in Montpelier, Bear Pond Books, Claire Benedict, which after the flood, let's see, five weeks after the flood, is reopening today. They're open. They've been open for 34 minutes, and we're all rushing over there to buy a bunch of books. And it's uh, it's always exciting when a local bookstore reopens. Well, that's great. Yesterday I read on um, – it's called Shelf Awareness, and it's a uh, a web a, a web, web, web page that comes up in my inbox every morning. And it gives uh, publishing news and library news, and um, it said that Bear Pond was coming back. And that was at the top of my notes for the, our chat this morning was, Welcome back, Bear Pond Books. Um, been missed nationally. Everybody has been thinking about you. Oh, that's great. That's, that's great. great. Okay. We've got a couple of days left in summer. It's rained basically every day the entire summer. Uh, you're not new to that, but we are. So we need some books to get us through Labor Day weekend. Let's start. Okay. That sounds great. Um, I was just gifted with a wonderful book. Um, it's called Need Blind Ambition by Kevin Myers. And it's, um, it takes place at a liberal arts school, not to be named. I know which one it is. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's very, you know, it's very recognizable. And I think if you're, anyone is educated at a liberal arts college, you might recognize certain administrative characters in this book. Yeah. And I love the pull quote, which is, how far will a college stray to protect its reputation? So you just know you're in for a good story right there. Oh, yeah. Um, the protagonist in the book is a fellow by the name of Peter Cook, who has just left Alaska. He's living in Juneau, and he's on the ferry headed down uh, to Bellingham, Washington, and he's going to start a job at the prestigious Parker College. And he's lured to this job by the chance to work with his child political idol turned college president and to promote his hero's fundraising initiative. That would eliminate financial status from the college's admission process. Oh. When Peter arrives on campus, the Great Recession of 2008 looms. The stock market is trending towards disaster, and the opioid crisis has breached the walls of the privileged college. He quickly learns he's in a um, the position of communications director, and he quickly learns the reality of Parker College straying far from its professed idealistic mission and um, a plot to cover up felonist drug activity in return for a seven-figure payday to the Need Blind campaign. <laughs> it's not exactly a whodunit, but I was brilliantly surprised by how fast the pages were turning when I was reading it. And I read a lot for my job. So sometimes when I take a book to read in the evening, it's not necessarily a slog, but it's a slow go. But I just raced through this, and I think it would be a perfect weekend read. So I would head out to the bookstore and see if they've got it in stock. I hope they do. Um, okay, I'll put it on my list immediately. Okay, terrific. That, 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 hits, a, it, that hits a little close to home for me, Mary. I know, I know. I, You know, I... <laughs> You know, you ask me for um, 
uh, in the middle of the week, you asked me for, you know, what books are we going to talk about? And I still hadn't made an absolute decision. And I only have four to four to talk to you about today. But it's it was a hard it was a hard poll. <laughs> <laughs> OK, on to the next. The next one is um, it. It's um, it's from a publisher called Little Gestalten, which is a Berlin-based publisher. Um, but it's the book is in English, and it's it, it's a, ch- a children's book imprint. But I I found it charming, and I think that you know anyone in the family would find it charming. So if there's a a small person in the ho- house um, where someone's reading a story, I think that once you start reading it, other people in the house will gather around. It's called Shiro and the Polka Dot Snake by Hiyoko Ayami, and um, it's about my favorite season, which is what we're entering, autumn. The The main character is a little boy named Sun and his white-tailed dog, Shiro, and these two love spending their days outdoors exploring nature together. Every year they look forward to early fall when shiny red apples start to grow in the orchard near their house. On the latest adventure, they meet a curious little creature called the polka dot snake, who's a slithering friend who happens to love apples even more than they do. It's witty and sweet and a book worthy of reading and rereading as often as it might be asked for. Mm. Wow, sounds like fantastic. A boy and his dog. A boy and his dog, a great bicycle, they fly kites, and they eat a lot of apples in every form. Apple pie, apple cider, apples off the tree. And it's interesting that the polka dot snake only likes the cores of the apple. <laughs> so it's it's like a, the perfect ecological situation where every piece of the apple is being eaten. I oh. think people will like it. Okay. And the illustrations are fabulous. Okay. All right. So last time we talked about uh, short stories and novellas. This is this doesn't have a, a novella, but it's a book of short stories. And it's the perfect book for the end of summer. Even the cover of the book screams end of summer. It's um, it's, it will make you feel nostalgic for what's soon to be in our rearview mirror. Um, it's a picture of a, a beach two umbrellas, a blanket, and a man sitting in a um, a, a, a chair, uh, and he's reading a book. And so that just sizes up summer for me perfectly. Um, the author is a woman named Jean McGarry, and I think Jean is the queen of short story writing. She's a, an amazing observer, and she captures the everyday with just the right words and just the right tone. And I think this is one of her best books, and certainly not her only book. She's um, very prolific. Um, The stories of Ocean State roll over the reader like a wave. They're essential moments and mysteries of a seemingly ordinary world that break into magical territory before we can brace ourselves. The New York Times has described Jean's writing as deft, comic, and devastatingly precise. And I think they're spot on with all of those words. And the title might give a little something away. Jeans from Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. Okay. Wow. Yep. Um, the last book that I'm going to leave you with is, I'm sorry to say, on a little bit of a heavy note. 
it's um it's a poetry book and it's by a man named Ed Pavlock and it's called Call It in the Air and it's a collection of poems that are unsparingly honest and profoundly loving it's the account of a brother's bottomless grief while he witnesses his sister's death and the memories of growing up together but sadly not growing all together the different paths that they each took Ed teaches at the University of Georgia and he's the author of 11 previous books, each and every one worth checking out. On that note, I want to remind the listeners that they have until October 30th to vote for Vermont's next Poet Laureate. All they have, If they have someone in mind, all they have to do is go to vermontartscouncil.org oh. slash programs slash Poet Laureate, and there's a form to fill out about who you would want, want to nominate. And this was interesting to me that uh, citizens can just do this. Um, I've been on the board and, uh, of judges uh, judging nominations for the Oregon Poet Laureate. It's a very fun process. It takes a morning every other year. and um, the, the But the nominations not necessarily coming in from uh, – you know, anyone in the state is it's coming in from other poets and from publishers and um, humanities people. It's uh, bookstore people. So it's a it's a nice change for me to see that, you know, anyone on the street could be voting for their next poet laureate. Well, and it and a long list it is. I mean, Robert Frost, Grace Paley, Ellen Brian Voigt, Louise Gluck, Galway Canal. I mean, and the current poet laureate, I believe, is I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Mary Ruffle, Ruffley, Ruffle, yeah, Ruffle, yeah, and, yeah. It's a formidable list. I I also looked it up, and I was just knocked out by um, the talent that Vermont has brought forth, and. Um, a little jealous. I don't live there, maybe. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. Winter's coming. <laughs> Mary, before we let you go, I want we should explain to the audience again why we are not just giving them recommendations off the New York Times bestseller list, which I find to be the easy thing. I, we're doing something kind of fun and different here. We are. We're talking about not brand new books. Um, well, Need Blind Ambition is brand new and I actually gave that a second thought like um, here I am second episode of talking to Kevin and I'm already breaking my own rules yeah. which which were to <laughs> talk about books that are probably from smaller presses. Kevin's book is from kind of a medium sized press um, but my focus has always been on smaller presses and university presses and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you Kevin is that the books that I'm bringing forth are not new. Um, they're, they could be a year old. They could be quite a few years old. So I think that we're talking, I think Jean's book might be mm, five, four or five years old. Um, Shiro is probably three or four years old. Um, and so we're not talking about books that are difficult to find, but we're talking about books that are slightly unsung, may have been forgotten, maybe didn't get a lot of reviews, but that I've found interesting and good reads. And that's that's what I want to do is I want to spread the word about books that – all sorts of books, but books that might not be picked up by Wall Street Journal or New York Times or um, Washington Post. Those are the, generally the go-to lists 
um, and we read those about those once a week. These are books that you know have fought for a place on the on the bookshelf in the store. And you can get them right here on Vermont Viewpoint. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, well, go to your local bookstore uh, and walk in, and uh, if they don't have it, ask them to order it for you, and uh, and uh, just don't do it online. Go see your go see your local bookstore owner, Mary Bisbee Beak, the publishing Sherpa. As always, thank you very much, and we'll see you next month. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for your time. Okay, Mary Bisbee Beak. The Publishing Sherpa, if you are a, bud, a, a budding author who's got a manuscript and you think it's uh, great or if you think it's terrible, you call up Mary Bisbee Beak and she uh, she helps you shape it into a manuscript that might be worthy of publication. She's in Portland, Oregon, and she's been in this business for a long time, and I just love her, uh, her approach to uh, all things books and publishing. We're back. And uh, that was fun. Mary Bisbee Beak uh, from Portland, Oregon. Uh, isn't that where Powell's Books is, the famous bookstore? Isn't it the largest yes. bookstore in the world? Um, I'm trying to think if I've been. And, and I, I the, the reason Powell's came across, just because of the size, I don't even know if they have a website. I, I'm trying to remember if I tried to figure yeah. that out or not. Yeah. But, yeah, I've heard of them. If I went in a place like that, I would be paralyzed. I, I would. Uh, you probably have to send a Sherpa in. You've been to the Strand in New York, right? Uh, no, I haven't been to. I, I can remember when I was a kid. I, I went to. It was a Peaches record store in <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. They turned an old grocery store into a record store. I was lost. I bookstores and record stores, man. I okay. can't. And I am. By the way, I want. I, I will be heading to Bear Pond Books this weekend to say uh, hello to Claire and the gang. Very, very happy. For okay. Them. By the way, you're 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 listening to the voice of Greg Titus, who is on the soundboard. He. He of the Mad River Valley, and I can't let you get away without commenting on your hometown bookstore. I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's, it's in Tempest, Waitsfield. Tempest. Tempest Bookstore. Yes. I go in there. I'm there for hours. And, you know, part of it, so it's a good thing and bad thing about it. It may be one of the worst organized bookstores <laughs> I've ever been in in my life. So I, I'm an orderly person. You are. And I, I feel as though you, you, you got to go alphabetical. And this is why when I heard Claire talking about getting, fetching all the books out, cleaning them, and then putting them back on the shelves again in alphabetical order, it's, it's such a pain. But if – the thing about the Tempest, boy, you go in there and, and, and you're you're wandering around, but it's stunning the stuff you find. Yeah, uh, it is, and, and and they get stuff that you think, okay, there's no way that they're going to have this, but boy, they do. And if you need something, they will always get it for you. And I I, I have not. I usually introduce myself to the owners. Uh, my wife was with me this time, and she told me under no circumstances will I bother this guy. But the guy at the desk doesn't quite seem to care whether you buy a book or not. No, no. And and p part of what you have to be aware of, so if you go in, if he gets in a conversation with someone who's buying a book, he's not going to rush it along. No. You know, yeah, again, if you're in a hurry, don't go there because <laughs> it's, again, it's hard to find stuff and the owner loves to chat, but boy, it's it's always a fascinating conversation. So yeah, Tempest. Tempest okay, what are you going to buy at Bear Pond Books? And you're going to round up to the nearest dollar. Yes, I'm rounding up to the nearest dollar. Um, I I don't know. Um, I have that uh, 
I have that killer, uh, killers, oh. killers of the flower moon. Yeah. That's on my stack. Uh, that's one, that's one I need to read next. Um, I just picked up a, I just picked up a book on Jimmy Carter called The Outlier. That's Jonathan Alter's book. Yes. Yeah, I know uh, him. I, I know I'm, him. I'm going to read that. Yeah, um, he's also, good. He's very good. Another book I just picked up, Prisoners of Geography. It talks about how, uh, uh, how the development of certain nations has been, has been driven and limited and shaped by, again, the rant and what folks don't realize, the random decisions that have been made <laughs> in terms of setting up borders and stuff. So yeah, a river, you know, I mean, that makes sense, but a lot of the lines that we've drawn, uh, they just don't, they just don't make any sense. So yeah, uh, I have those two, but I, I'm going to go to Bear Pond and I just like wandering around in there and, and I, I'm really excited to see what they've done with the store. Okay. There's a big issue though. There in the old Bear Pond, there was a black easy chair tucked away in a corner, the far corner of the bookstore. Right. You could get a book, you could sit down. And it, just, you peruse know. it, yeah. And yeah. and it, nobody bothered you. The question is, is that chair going to be back? I should have asked Claire that. That's the first You'll thing I'm going to look for. Are you going this afternoon? Uh, well, yeah, I've got, I could either run over there between 11 and 12 or I can't get there till 3, but I'll get there. Yeah, I think, um, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it until probably Monday because I'm going to be up at Smugs uh, tomorrow and Sunday for the disc golf. Uh, but, uh, the world championships, Kevin, the world disc golf championships taking place at Smuggler's Notch. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, okay. we we need you need to do a show on that at some okay. point. We'll okay. talk about that. Okay. This is a show of high aspiration. We and do politics and culture and the it's idea. Culture. It's culture. God. Disc golf. It's taken off. I I uh, it, it's like it's the pickleball <sighs> of <sighs> of uh, athletics. Uh, okay. Okay. Are you a disc golfer? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, a long, long time. So in Barry, they have this the hiking trail called the Millstone yes. Trail. Yeah, and they have the quarry, and they have the quarry uh, disc golf uh, course up there. It's, I, it, you're walking blissfully along <laughs> on <laughs> on these on the looking into the quarries, thinking, should I dive in uh, to this to this quarry? Don't do it. Don't dive no, in. Don't 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 do that. Um, and along comes a frisbee by your head, and some guy, and he's carrying the case, and he's got nine discs. It's the whole thing. Yeah, um, I I play I play with people. They've got like they've got like thirty discs in their bag. That's that's way way beyond what I do. But uh, no, it's it's fun. And I've scored up at Smugs uh, for the last. I, I've probably done it five of the last six years. Wait, you're you're an official? Yes. Yes. Don't give me that look. I've refereed. I've refereed high school basketball, softball, soccer. Um, all the officials. Uh, when I started refereeing, they all looked at me and said, "You got to be kidding me." But uh, yeah, um, I, I've had experience on uh, both sides of the glass, both sides of the field. So uh, yeah. Okay. It, Can we talk about one thing also before we go? Sure. The the bring it and run it. At Thunder Road this weekend. Run what you brung. Run, run what you brung. People take their vehicles, cars that they own, personal cars, and they go out on the track and they race each other. You win, you move on, you lose, you're done. There is contact. 
There are contact between drivers. There's contact with the walls. It's fabulous. Uh, and uh, I drove one press race at Thunder Road way, way, way back, and that's where I learned that I was not built to be a race car driver. Those people are crazy. Can you bring your, an electric car or any car? Oh, that would be a really – I saw <laughs> – so this got rained out. Someone – it looked like a tractor. It looked like a tractor from a tractor trailer that the guy had. So I don't know what class he was racing in, but that's – I don't know. I will – my wife – Wife is going. I'm not going to go tonight, but she is. I will ask her whether there are any electric vehicles. Okay, wait. Your wife is going to Thunder Road, but you're not. Uh, Laura is a much, much bigger fan of Thunder Road than I am. <laughs> okay. And I got to get up to do disc golf on Saturday. So, yeah. That's and one more note. Uh, the Champlain Valley Fair is still going yep. on. Is yep. that right? Yeah. yeah. That's through... I think it ends on Monday. It usually ends on Labor Day, right? Yeah, okay. And the marketing guy there, Jeff Bartley, uh, sent me a text. I said, yeah, I'll talk about it on the show. But beware, Jeff. Uh the Tunbridge World's Fair is coming up, and that's a real fair. Yeah, okay. that's 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 old school. That's my fair. I'll be there probably on Thursday. It's an eight dollar ticket, but that's coming up in September. We'll we'll say more about it next week. But uh get yourself out to the Champlain Valley Fair. There's still a lot going on. And uh, I guess that's it for our show for uh, this week. Anything else? Um, I don't know. We're okay. We're, we're going to read it out. Yeah, we're pretty we're pretty close here. Um, let me think. So on um, so Monday we're going with it's Labor Day. So we're going to have uh, we won't have Vermont Viewpoint on Monday. We have a we have a, a, a Labor Day special from the uh, folks at CBS. Okay, that's running uh, that's running from nine until noon. Um, and uh. I get to uh, I get to get up early in the morning and uh, fill in for Lee next week. Lee getting a well earned vacation. So um, yeah, but knowing him, he's going to be in his car driving some he, like to California. He's heading he's he's heading to a poker game someplace. That's oh what my God. that's what that's what Lee does. So uh, yeah. okay. On that note, that is our show for today. My thanks to guests Claire Benedict, Mark Redman. Bob Nay, Kevin McCollum of Seven Days, Mary Bisbee Beak, and Greg Titus on the other side of the glass. If you want to be a guest on this show, send us a suggestion or a topic. Send me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. It doesn't have to be a fancy press release. Just send an email. Our, go at the, our goal at this show is exploration, understanding, and knowledge. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. And, of course, you can listen live to the show. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com, where you can subscribe to my newsletter called Conflict of Interest. Follow me on social media. My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on the show. I'll be back Wednesday of next week. As, uh, we, we're going to try to go back on the road. I'm not sure we'll make it next Wednesday. Uh, and uh, by the way, the three apple trees in my backyard are uh, bending over to the ground with apples. Uh, I'm putting out a call. Come pick your own. <laughs> I can't. I can't make enough of them uh, for applesauce and juice. So uh, send me an email. You can find me at kevinkls.com or the VT Viewpoint email. And come to my place in uh, East Montpelier in, in up, up on the hill, and uh, we've got plenty of apples. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible today by the one and only Greg Titus and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer. Hello, Ken Squire, <laughs> WDEV.